Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Hold My Drink, where we navigate the news and politics with a chaser of civility. I'm your host, Jen, inviting you to grab your favorite beverage, sit back, and imagine with us how to create a new American identity together. Welcome to this week's Hold My Drink. My co-host this week is Tom Eastman. I know Tom because he was a water polo player and I was a cheerleader at the same high school. And today Tom is a constitutional lawyer and he is litigating a major First Amendment case. We're gonna talk a little bit about that in the podcast. Um, And also I got a surprise for you, Tom. But first the question is, what are we drinking for this podcast? My drink is uh, A&W root beer. There's uh, my favorite is a uh, obscure root beer out of Minnesota called Iron Horse. I can never find it, but A&W is a close second. And didn't you one time tell me that like A&W was created out of the pandemic? So yeah, 1919 was a busy year. You had a pandemic that uh, killed 600,000 people, mostly healthy, and also A&W root beer was founded. So it wasn't a horrible year all the way across the board. So we just need like, you know, another root beer to, to save us. That's right. You know, we've got a few <laughs> days left in the year. So get on it, guys. Well, I just have uh, my, my normal glass of, of wine here, but I did wear something special for you. The last time you and I talked, I wore pug pants for you because you and I are both pug lovers or your wife and your daughter are pug lovers, whatever. Same difference. So, I have a pug cleaner upper after. Yeah. So this shirt, knowing um, your conservative roots, is can you see it very nice Mm, reagan's raiders is what i'm wearing for for tom today Solid. (laughs) one of the more solid presidents in the in our in our living past i would argue but um but so speaking that let's get into like politics a little bit you are right now on a major First Amendment case. Can you tell us a little bit about it, um, what what you're litigating, what it looks like, uh, to the extent that you can? Yeah, sure. I'm I'm actually uh, finishing off my opening brief on the appeal this morning. Uh, we represent a, a client, uh, Riley's Farm, out in the uh, San Bernardino Mountain foothills by Yukaipa. And for years, they've hosted these very popular uh, living history field trips for uh, schools across Southern California, where they have reenactors dressed up as people in the revolution or or the colonial era or the Civil War or the gold rush, all these different eras. And it's a big, beautiful uh, property out in the hills with 700 acres plus. Um, And it's all very period authentic and they have some really great presentations about American history. Uh, Jim Riley is a, a conservative, an opinion, opinionated conservative, and was more active on social media than I think he has been lately. At some point, about the same time that uh, people were trying to boycott the uh, legendary In-N-Out Burger chain because of their donations to Republican politicians, somebody else got an idea that maybe we should boycott Riley's Farm, too, for having these, uh, these horrible opinions. Uh, and so uh, some activists organized kind of a, a boycott campaign and got uh, a bunch of public schools to cease their field trips. Now, it's, a boycott is constitutionally protected, right? You can decline to do business with somebody for, you know, because you don't like their politics unless you are a public entity. Under the Constitution, there is a doctrine called the Unconstitutional Conditions Doctrine. Uh, just as the government can't directly 
uh, punish you for your speech. They can't burn you at the stake for saying something heretical. They can't uh, take away a valuable public benefit, for example, uh, a tax break or welfare benefits or public business patronage in retaliation for free speech. And so we filed a complaint and we've been litigating that for a few years. We got some good favorable rulings that we did articulate a constitutional violation, but then we hit a snag. Uh, the court granted the other side summary judgment, which is a pretrial ruling based on the doctrine of qualified immunity. Now that's been, that's a doctrine that itself has been controversial lately. It's basically the rule that says that even if something is unconstitutional, if it hasn't been addressed precisely before, the government basically gets one free shot at you. Uh, that has come up uh, in a major way in connection with the uh, the recent, you know, police misconduct business because of course you know there's so many different ways the the cops can mess you up that well i mean there was there was one supreme court case which we're actually citing where they they've dialed this doctrine back a little bit uh a prisoner had been kept in uh basically a a cell up to his ankles and crap with crap in the sink and the bed everywhere and uh the, the Court of Appeals said, well, yeah, it's pretty bad that you're keeping a prisoner for several days in a crap-filled room, but it's there's never been actually a case like this before, and it's not precisely certain whether, you know, the exact number of inches of crap on the floor that's allowed before it becomes a constitutional violation. Supreme Court said, yeah, that's a bit much. You know, it's pretty obvious. And so that's, you know, our, our take is that the constitutional principle here is is clearly established and disqualified immunity rule won't apply. Okay, but there, so let me make sure that I understood you with the qualified immunity since you're the lawyer and I don't have any legal background, is that if they had, if there isn't any precedence for such a case that they can kind of say, hey, until we figure this out, like that's good, we, you know, we, we, we recognize your case, but we're going to give you a free pass on this one because we just don't have any precedent. Did, did I yeah, and the doctrine itself has been taken, I think, too far, but the court in our case took it even farther. There is the rule that says that if a constitutional principle is clearly established, then just because the violation occurs in a different factual context, uh, that doesn't give you qualified immunity. You know, for example, if let's say, uh, you know, you get a sneak preview of my brief here. If uh, if a vendor to a mosquito abatement district in California had uh, said something that the uh, local mosquito czars didn't like, um, the, uh, the agency wouldn't be entitled to constitutional or to qualified immunity just because the last case involved a cotton pest abatement district or a flood control district. Yeah, it's the, these external incidents don't matter. It's if the principle itself is clearly established, then, um, you know, then there's no qualified immunity. Where it gets ticklish is in the context of policing where you know the the degree of force that's reasonable in making an arrest or the the amount of suspicion that amounts to probable cause it's kind of a subjective uh variable uh view and so there are some arguments that you know that there should be some there should there does need to be some example of that particular misconduct being previously ruled to be uh, unacceptable but where the principle itself is is clear and established and it definitely applies just because the uh, there isn't an exact match on the case law, that's not supposed to be qualified immunity. So we're pretty confident about how we'll do there. 
Well, let me let me make sure I also understand the case. So uh, we've got a, a a farm, and it's one of those places that we used to all go to for field trips to see a reenactment of something cool like the you know Civil War, Revolutionary War, whatnot. So it's, it's a place of history, and the owner of the farm said some 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 things that were conservative, uh, and the school district said, "What? We don't like our kids going to conservative places." What was the actual complaint? That was basically the complaint. There was there was one thing where he sort of poo-pooed the concept of white supremacy as being the province of three or four losers in Arkansas, whereas uh, you know Louis Farrakhan, who is you know really a, a blatant, uh, I guess black nationalist, is you know he's acceptable in quote polite society. He can he can be photographed with future presidents. Uh, that you know, it, what he said was, you know, it's within the the realm of I think what would pass for the bounds of general civic discourse. And I think he said that one of the things that really frosted him was that he said, "I just realized going to my high school reunion that I may be the last generation born with just two genders." I mean, it's not like he's saying we should reinstitute slavery or something like that. These are mm-hmm. these are things which you know, people, I think, will say. Uh, Without, and they shouldn't. And they shouldn't have the hammer of government come down on them for that. And to be clear, this is this is not anything that was said in the context of the field trips. This is on his own social media, on his own time. There is no indication that anybody thinks this is the district speaking, and that we have to disassociate ourselves with it from that. Right. So it would be one thing if you know I decided if if I found out that my kid was going to Riley Farm for a field trip and I held them back that day because I didn't like him, that would be okay. But it's the other. It's a. It's another thing when a whole public school district something that's government run bans entirety its patronage to Riley's farm. Is that, is that the crux of the? Yeah. The simplified version is that private citizens can boycott over politics. Government cannot. Okay. Well, you know, that speaking of, of, of boycotting and, you know, freedom of speech and all that. I mean, I really want to touch on social media uh, because that's such a weird area where, you know, should we regulate it? Should we not regulate it? And um, you said something funny the other day that is still cracking me up and I'm still using it today. You called someone, you were like banned by Facebook for calling someone a like monkey spanker, what? There's a background to that. Okay, so a friend of a friend, you know, I I have a reputation, I think, for being fairly civil on Facebook and trying to see both sides of things and not hate people for having the wrong opinions. Uh, There are some people, some friends of some friends who who have a a sterner view of of, uh, (laughs) what should be allowed in discourse. And this one guy has just been, you know, he'll just he'll just stalk me and and just, uh, you know, call me all sorts of things and at one point he called me a shameless troll or whatever and and so you know just riffing on joe biden's i think what was it he calling somebody a, a lying dog-faced pony soldier i, I called him a pig bottom monkey spanker i thought the irony was pretty clear but uh, whoever facebook has running the, the show uh, thought that was that thought that was rude and so i got a 24-hour warning and it still shows up you know i don't be naughty again or we'll we'll do something more like you've been warned it's like a little like white slip. That's what you got. Yeah, it's like it's like getting a check on the board and in Mrs. Uh, Rocchio's class. And if you if you get two checks, you got to stay after school. Uh huh. Well, you know, I'm I was always kind of like a rule follower, right? And so, uh, 
I only got one white slip at Mariners Elementary School for being across the the like the yellow line of showing what part of the playground you could be on. Mr. Hughes nailed me, and everybody when I came back into class, and he was like, "Ooh, Eastman." Yeah, slippery, slippery slope, Eastman. Yeah, you know, first yeah. thing I get a white slip. Next thing I'm going to be, you know, Bernie Madoff, you know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Still working on that one. Calling, calling us so we can find you a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, wait, what do you think about the Constitution, social media, freedom of speech, and the intersection of all of those? Should we place some sort of uh, regulation? on social media, uh, because obviously, obviously we cannot control ourselves. I mean, I would love to say, no, we all just need to be nicer, right? Let's just be nice, but yeah. that's not gonna work, right? So we can say, oh, we need to police ourselves or whatnot, but I, I um, should we place some regulation on it for fake news or, you know, Twitter's already putting out little things saying, you know, fact check this, fact check that. Should we do that? Or should we just be like, look, y'all have to figure this out on your own, like be smart. Yeah. So, you know, first, first off, the First Amendment doesn't apply to private actors, right? I mean, you can, you can uh, decline to let somebody speak in your living room without breaking the First Amendment. The problem is, uh, so let me analogize. In California, uh, back in the 70s, uh, when the concept of the shopping mall and the mini mall was, was new, uh, California was a little bit different from most states. They, they ruled that Malls were kind of becoming the equivalent of the public public streets, the public square, and so people had to be allowed to uh, uh, engage in First Amendment Amendment activity on 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 private property, even if it sort of was displaced in the public square. And I, you know, I remember having a conversation in law school with a very you know economically liberal guy, and his argument was that it's not just that the poor are poor because the rich are rich. That's not you know, he recognized that that's not necessarily the case. He was saying just the fact of people being extremely rich uh, gives them more power to squeeze out other people's voices. And at the time, I thought that was probably overstated. And as I practiced commercial and, and uh, public law later, you you see how a sort of penny-ante little municipal clerk can can basically tie a gigantic developer up in knots. You know, economic power only gets you so far, right? There's guys with guns, and they can say no, and that's that. But the the tech monopolies, if we want to call them that, they have a dominance over the public square in a way that nobody has ever had before. Uh, it'd be almost like uh, a phone company deciding that they were going to not allow speech that they didn't like, or or um, or, or something like that. It, social media has come to be such a huge part of our discourse that, especially when the people policing it you know, are not exactly even handed in how they do it, right? You know, some things will get fact-checked from one side, humongous whoppers will get allowed through on the other, and that distorts things. So we got to take a look at that. Uh, one of the possibilities is to start regulating them as public utilities, like like the phone company mm -hmm. or the water company, and say, basically, you have to carry all traffic, uh, you know, that meets certain basic, well-defined criteria. But having like some guy with a ZZ Top beard and a nose ring decide what's going to be allowed to, you know, be kosher in public, the public discourse, that's too much power for one person to have. Right, right, right. Well, that or even even on the other side, right, having a having a you know farmer 
in the Midwest deciding what, you know, someone in New York can and can't say. I mean, it's just like we, we've got the, yeah, there needs to be some uniformity and a separate power. But then does, does that power, who runs that? You know, and it would it depend on the administration and would it change versus your administration, administration. And that brings me into where we're at now with 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 Trump and and and, and Biden and, and Kamala. And and I mean, we've seen a lot of news lately on this whole like fake news or the voter fraud, voter fraud. And I would love to get your I mean, it's, you know, there, it, it's become so hard to really find out the truth in social media. So let's take voter fraud and let's place that into kind of your paradigm of how we would deal with social media in your perfect world. Um, what what would you say? I mean, would, would, would was there really, you know, voter fraud? Can we talk about it? What, what can we and can't we talk about? Well, first off, I don't really know. Uh, I think as we talked about last time, uh, we have 50 different election systems in the country. Uh, I probably know more about California election law than the average person, just because I've dabbled in it a little bit. Uh, but I'm not even a master of, of California's election procedures, let alone uh, Georgia's, let alone Atlanta's local, local procedures, you know, how things are done. Uh, and it's funny because I can't remember, it was either Facebook or Twitter was attaching a warning notice to everything that discussed even the possibility of election fraud. Yeah. We have strict laws and rules and procedures designed to keep things honest. Well, we have strict laws and procedures preventing people from driving drunk, and yet so it happens. Uh, we're basically being asked to, to take people's word for it on a kind of honor system, and there are millions of Americans who look at these late breaking changes at the middle happening in the middle of the night and they they think it smells uh, and i'm not ready to say that that's patently insane off the you know off the cuff i i think at the very least we need to to look through these with as granular a level of uh, scrutiny as we did the quote russian collusion business mm -hmm. you know a couple of years and tens of millions of dollars was spent on that i think it's at least as important that we get at least that much confidence that this election is legitimate. And I don't think that calling people insane or conspiracy theorists uh, immediately is, is going to help. Uh, I mean, there there is some nutty stuff out there. I mean, there's like some patently, obviously made up stuff out there. And it's frustrating because that tends to tar the whole enterprise. And, and uh, but I, uh, you know, if we, if we set it as a rule, that there absolutely can never possibly ever be any voter fraud. And to discuss that is to be crazy. That guarantees that there will be election fraud because people will do what they will get, they can get away with. You know, that's really interesting. I think you make a really good point and you are always so even handed um, in social media, which is a gift by the way. Uh -huh. but, <laughs> but let me um, ask you this because I think really what it's about is really more about Trump than it is necessarily about voter fraud. It's, it's, it's this insistence from Trump and this kind of arrogance and haughtiness over social media. And then it's also a lot of people who follow him. So a lot of people, you know, we, we talk about like a cult of personality around Trump. And so there's this concern that the um, specter of voter fraud 
will continue to last into the new administration and it will cause discord in how we function as a government. So I hear what you're saying that, you know, like if there was truly voter fraud, why, why wouldn't we? I mean, of course we would want to make sure that for not, not only for this election, but for all future elections, that they're fair and free. But I think that there is a concern that Trump will use that as a way to kind of stay in and to, to um, generate his cult of personality and create discord and disharmony. What do you what do you think about that? And is that a concern of yours? Yeah, no, it's a real concern. Uh, you know, it's interesting uh, when I the first thing I heard about the possibility of uh, irregularities in election wasn't from in Trump. It was from a friend of mine on Facebook who uh, is an accountant. He's like, this looks really fishy. In fact, he said there was, well, we'll say feckery afoot. <laughs> that wasn't his word. Uh, so, but but Trump is, he is a unique personality. And while I don't think that, uh, you know, the demon figure he's been made out to me is, to be is, is totally accurate. He's got some temperamental issues. And I, I, I I think the concerns about a cult of personality are are valid. One of the things that really rubbed me the wrong way during his uh, his uh, and I think it was inauguration address was when he was listing all these problems that we had, and then he said, "Only I can fix this." Well, I mean, we're not supposed to be waiting for a man on a white horse, right? You know, that's right. for you know banana infested uh, dictatorships to to do. You know, if, if democracy comes down to one person and only he can fix it, we're screwed anyway. You know, we need to have at the minimum a band of brothers or sisters. Uh, if we don't have a wide body of people who love liberty and love the, the Constitution and the way it helps people who disagree live together, one person isn't going to be able to do it. So, yeah, no, I, I, I share that concern. His temperament is... is he brought some things to the table, I think, that were needed, uh, sort of a contempt for uh, sort of the cool kids. Uh, but he also brought some other things with that, which make his legacy complicated, we'll put it that way. What do you think? So a lot of people, um, when, when people say that Trump lies, and I know I agree with you. I think that some of it was overblown. And I think the media, like, I mean, the media loves dirty laundry, right? So, I mean, it makes them money. But, you know, there are some really tough things. And you kind of already said he's, he's, a, he's a tough character. But the lies and that he kept all of his promises and that he did this and he did that and no one else did it. Um, what are some of the things that you think that he really did do? That so, great benefit? oh, go ahead. You got to finish your, you gotta finish yeah, your yeah. sentence. I didn't know. Well, no. What was did do that was what? That was that was of 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 great benefit. What do you what do you see about oh. Trump when you look back and you're like the Trump era? This is you know this is something no one else did. It was a good thing. Like what 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 can you say about him that is redeeming? I guess is the word. I think the one thing that can be taken to the bank as a redeeming feature would be uh, the Abraham Accords with uh, some of the Arab countries in Israel. Hmm. Uh, he, his administration has brokered uh, peace deals between uh, more Arab countries and Israel than all of his predecessors combined, like multiple times over. I think we had, what was it, Jordan and Egypt before, and then they've been just popping up one after another. I mean, they celebrated Hanukkah in Dubai, for Pete's sake. That's huge. I mean, we're, we're, we're old enough, right, to remember, you know, we even remember when the Cold War was something that was going to last forever. We, you know, we thought that the Arab-Israeli con you know, conflict was going to last forever. I mean, these are things that people who, you know, don't have those decades of 
that being just like the environment. I don't think a lot of people understand how how massive that is. I think another thing is he definitely has. Um, I think he might have broken the the stranglehold of what some people have called market fundamentalism on the Republican Party. Uh, there's this sense that the Republican coalition is going to have to be more working class uh, than it has been. And I think there's there's going to be a sort of a tectonic shift in both parties as, you know, the coalitions get reshuffled. And, you know, Trump has gotten more, I think, minority uh, members to vote for him than most of his predecessors. Uh, it'll be interesting. I mean, yeah, it's like, uh, what is it? Showing lie supposedly said, but really didn't say about the French Revolution, right? You know, what do you think about it? It's too early to tell. It's too early to tell. Joe it's too early to tell about a lot of this stuff. But I, I see some, some seeds that if they're, if we don't blow it, uh, these can blossom into something positive. I think they can blossom into something positive at the helm of someone, someone positive. You know, I, I feel like, I mean, I won't go down there. Let me ask you another question. What do you think about Trump? Was Trump really a Republican? Was he conservative? What would you well, call him? You, do? Um, you know, if I had to say anything, I'd basically say he's Ed Koch from, you know, the mayor of New York back from the, uh, was it the, the 70s? Okay. You know, he's a, he's a particular, I think he would be basically an old school Democrat. Uh, he does differ from Republicans on a lot of things, especially uh, trade policy, and he is certainly a, a, a lot less uh, warlike as far as let's go off and you know uh, liberate the crap out of some hapless country. Um, there are some definite differences in him, and uh, you know, again, I think they can be overblown, but probably if I had to, if I had to pigeonhole him, it'd be like kind of an outer borough New York Democrat from the eighties. Okay. So, so socially kind of conservative in some ways, but certainly uh -huh. not like, you know, blue blazered Christian coalition, holier than now, uh, eighties, you know, definitely, a right. sort of a feistier type. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you're, you're absolutely right with his, his, the election, you know, I think what was surprising to most people is, is how much he actually, I mean, I, I believe he lost, but I was surprised with how much he actually won. And I was surprised by so much turnout, like you already mentioned from the minority vote, but at the same time, I'm just a little bit concerned uh, that the, what I'm concerned about is that he's broken the Republican Party. And I'm not even a Republican, I'm more of a conservative. But I, I'm afraid that there are the, those who are still kind of, that would still follow Trump or you know, call him their leader in, into the new year. Um, I believe that those are kind of like the like crazies and it is, it is a threat to our democracy. So I'm worried about his, his legacy and I'm worried about what that means for us in being able to come together in 2021 and beyond. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. Uh, there was that Lynn Wood attorney in, in Georgia suggesting that people actually sit out the Georgia election. I was just tearing my hair out thinking, no, that is the stupidest thing possible. Yeah. And you've yeah. got people who were talking about creating new states and packing the Supreme Court and just all sorts of radical crap. And it's like, you're going to risk that over, I mean, you know, you can say whatever positive you want to about Donald Trump, but like I said, we cannot come down to depending on one man. 
Right, uh, that's right. not how a republic works. It is supposed to be a team effort, and you know you don't you don't add to a winning coalition by excommunicating everybody except this narrow little core of zealots. I mean, there's a place for zeal, but not zeal without knowledge. Yeah. And if you just can't be convinced to even think a second time about uh, your strongest beliefs, you're not going to win. Right. So that brings me in. So I've got a question. So you're talking about that, you know, it can't be a, all around one person. So this is kind of my final question for you for the day, because I'm almost finished with my drink is so there's a lot of talk about authoritarianism on both sides. And it's fascinating to me because we're just kind of talking past each other, right? I mean, to people on the on the left or progressives, Trump is the ultimate authoritarian, right? I mean, he's kind of that cult of personality that I was talking about. And then on the conservative side, on the right, you know, people are looking at the left and looking at these issues of freedom of speech and this quote cancel culture. And that's the ultimate authoritarian, you know, we're moving into Marxism. I mean, which is worse? I mean, are we, are we going in two different directions at the same time? How, what, what do you see is happening as, a, as, as, as someone who studies the law, so he, so he studies freedom of speech? I mean, which threat is worse? So uh, I have struggled with trying to understand what people consider super authoritarian about Donald Trump. I mean, and maybe it's a matter of us using the word to mean different things. Uh, it, it certainly, I, I think he definitely, uh, what, engages in some arguably authoritarian aesthetic uh, themes. But as far as actually increasing and centralizing executive power, you know, he's really not that far out of the ballpark of his predecessors. For example, uh, you know, one measure of how aggressively a, an executive is is uh, wielding his power is how often he gets smacked down by a nine to nothing majority of the Supreme Court, right? If you can get all of them to agree that, no, you're definitely pushing the boundaries, uh, then that's, you're throwing your authoritarian weight around. And that hasn't happened to him that much. You know, he, he's governed, I think, fairly, centrist while you know screaming bloody murder and making himself look bad you know what what is sometimes authoritarianism gets described as basically not you know fulfilling these uh you know partisan policy preferences i define authoritarianism as as um you know anything that erodes the ways that people of different ideas can live together you know the classical liberalism of the first amendment freedom of conscience freedom of speech uh, equality before the law, the rule of law, meaning that we're not going to have the, you know, public servants aren't going to be using one standard against its friends. And, you know, what did, they, what did President Obama say? Reward your friends, punish your enemies. I mean, that is authoritarian. And if the supposedly neutral organs of government start working for one side, you know, if the referees throw down their whistle and start throwing blocks for one team, you know, that's, that is authoritarian. I mean, we need to, as Danger, as important as good rhetoric is, and I firmly believe, I mean, Lincoln is sort of a national god because he was able to articulate the American idea so well. Yeah. You know, we need that. Yeah. And yet we also need to watch what actually comes out of the sausage-making machine, right? Uh, the substance, you know, is that authoritarian? Are we protecting uh, the institutions that allow our republic to stay a republic to flourish? That's the question. Yeah, and I... I thinking we're not always doing such a good job of that. I mean, we just, we get caught up in the rhetoric and in the, you know, in the language and in the tribalism. 
Yeah, more and more there's this just win baby sense. It's mm-hmm. Al Davis and the Raiders, right? You know, mm-hmm. by any means necessary. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's authoritarianism. That's, I think we talked about this last time. There was an essay that somebody wrote uh, uh, against murderism was, I think, the essay's name. And he was talking about how the uh, the institutions of classical liberalism, liberalism, excuse me, grew out of the aftermath of the Thirty Years' War in Europe. You know, the last of these just bloody, devastating religious conflicts where the population of some of these countries dropped by a third. So Europe basically said, "All right, you know, we need the the way the author wrote it was we came up with this piece of remarkable alien machinery that allows people who disagree fiercely to live together without trying to hit each other with, you know, flanged maces." and war hammers yeah let's not screw it up yeah well speaking of not screwing up so very final question for you what do you think will be the new constitutional challenges in the next year if any so i you know maybe i'm being optimistic but i really do see uh qualified immunity getting revisited and that sounds like inside baseball but it's kind of like the it's kind of like the hinge that ties all these different constitutional provisions together because, you know, my client, Mr. Riley is, you know, he's a brave and dedicated guy, right? Uh, but it's expensive and, and hard and stressful to wage litigation. Most of the time people just roll over. And if there's not, uh, you know, a real hope of a remedy at the end of this, uh, if, you know, if at the end of all this, all this effort, you know, the a court is just going to say, well, you know, yeah, it's unconstitutional, but hey, one free shot for the government. Uh, that's going to discourage even more people from, you know, standing up to vindicate the rights. And if you can't do that, you know, who cares what the formal rules are, right? Because it's all just a fiction. So there, Justice Thomas, uh, Justice Sotomayor, and some others have uh, made some noises about maybe we need to really rethink this qualified immunity business. And who knows, maybe our case is the one that, uh, you know, cracks the nut. Thanks Thanks. for having a drink with me. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hold My Drink. Like or subscribe to the show and check out the show notes for links to source material and to our website where you can find what each of us is reading every week. Different news with different views. If you have a topic that you would like us to explore, drop us a line. And join us next week as we say, hold my drink and the conversation gets real.